This episode is brought to you by Winnie the Pooh and the 100 Acre Re-Education Camp, starring Xi Jinping, in cinemas now. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Ramona Koval. Ramona is a writer, journalist, and broadcaster, and is the former host of The Book Show on Radio National. Her new book is A Letter to Layla, and it's out now. Thanks for joining us, Ramona. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, how is lockdown treating you? Um, Lockdown is treating me just like normal life treats me, um, more or less, because, you know, I've been a writer full-time now for now 10 years since I left the ABC. So it's a very solitary occupation anyway. So you're at home and you're kind of reading and writing and you're going for walks. And the only difference really is that um, I have to be home. I'm not allowed to find ways of, of uh, you know, avoiding sitting at the desk. And I can't see my grandchildren um, as much as I did. Um, so um, I can't distract myself by helping with various projects and and having sleepovers and that sort of thing. But anyway, besides that, it's fine, really, because it's going to stop. We're all going to be vaccinated, or the sensible ones are, and um, life will continue. But um, it's been a very interesting time. It certainly has. It's been really interesting. Let's move on to your new book, A Letter to Layla, Travels to Our Deep Past and Near Future. Can you tell our audience who Layla is? Layla is my youngest granddaughter, who is now six. But um, when I was, you know, beginning to think about this book, um, which for me was a, a study, I just wanted to work out what kind of creatures we are. Because as I got older and older, I discovered that the people who were younger than me were now in charge. And when I was growing up, I thought that people who were in charge must know what they're doing. And as I grew past their age, and then beyond their age, I suddenly had a sense that I wonder whether they really do know what they're doing. Um, when our world is facing all kinds of challenges, like you know, global warming and all kinds of uh, conflicts in various places, as well as a whole lot of other really terrific things that are happening. So I was interested in kind of trying to find out how we got to be as we are. And because I'd originally been trained in science um, and in biology and, and microbiology genetics, I was very interested in trying to trace some of these um, disciplines, um, as well as paleoarchaeology and anthropology. Uh, and, and I was, I was, I thought, well, how do we get to be like this? So, while I was doing the research for this book, um, Layla had been born. And her mother went back to work and she was an infant in a, in a bassinet. And, you know, um, grandmothers are the recep- re- recipients of packets of children and to look after. And she, was, she, was a, she arrived in a bassinet right here next to my desk as it, as it is. And as I was um, looking at what I was researching, I realised that I had um, a, a small homo sapiens next to me and I could observe the way she... Um, developed and it, it it kind of began as a sort of a relation between 
what I was researching and what I was observing. And, and then it was a kind of um, symbol of why I was doing all this research and, and travel, because I was very lucky to have completed all the travel before the world was in a pandemic. So I, I traveled the world, I came back, I thought about what I'd seen, and then I kind of related it to her. And well, and she stands in for all everyone's children and the few people of the future. So that's how she kind of, that's why, why she's in the book basically. <laughs> but it's more or less like a structural, a structural use of her being there every few chapters of, of sort of interrogating her and finding out what she's thinking and thinking about what I'd learned. That was one of the things I really loved about your book is the way you've structured that to bring her in. And it really gives a personal touch to the to the book and it really makes it not a series of essays, but a almost a memoir. Well, that's right. It's sort of memoir with research, <laughs> memoir with, with um, all kinds of strange people, strange ideas. But, you know, that's what our life is, isn't it? I mean, my life has, has always been engaging with ideas and books and people and things and trying to work out how it all works by trying to decode what other people have thought about the world and how it works. In this book, you go from, you go from caves in France to, uh, to chimps and then to robots. It really does cross the gamut of, I guess, human experience and, and pre-human experience. Well, I, ho I hope that's interesting for you because it's interesting for me. Um, and, you know, one of the great joys of being a journalist for such a long time was that it gave you permission as you're finding out now, you to ring up people to talk to them, and if you're lucky, they'll talk back to you. And it's a great, it's a great um, key, I guess, to um, engaging with with ideas and people all over the world. So, um, I, you know, you can sit and research at your at your leisure at home, but going somewhere and actually meeting a person who is an expert. Um, there's just nothing like it really and smelling and seeing and um, observing and taking note of where you find yourself like this guy here Jean Clot who I um, went to visit in France you mentioned the cave paintings well like you know cave art he, he's he's the man on cave art and this is such a beautiful book that I've had for a long time and you know, Lascaux and Chauvet and, and the end of the Ice Age and all of these things about Ice Age art. And then you can just go, well, I think I'll just talk to him. I'll just put this back now on the shelf. You know, well, maybe he'll talk to me. So, you know, you, you ring up and you they say yes and you make your way to France and you sit in his room and you sort of engage with him and you ask him all the questions that he didn't perhaps answer in, in the a book that you might want to, to know the answers to. So um, so for me, it was like following my nose, but also following the sort of logic of what needed to be asked and what needed to be answered. Um, and it took five years. It took five years of travel and, and writing. And, um, and it was a very fine way to pass the time, let me tell you. I get the feeling that when you were putting this together, it could have been a number of things. How did you, I guess, finish up with the project that you did? Well, you know, um, I'm not the kind of person who has a plan um, and says, you know, 
you know, it'll be this many chapters and it'll they'll be structured like that and I'll have, you know, Layla coming in here and there to, to structure it. I mean, I, I just start off with, you know, a notebook and begin and um, take my, I'm going to follow my nose. Um, in fact, where is that notebook? Oh, here it is. This is the... <laughs> This is the notebook that I started this project with. And it was had actually been given to me by a woman who ran a bookshop, who, and I came to talk to her about a previous book. She gave me this notebook as a present, and it didn't, ha you know, it was a, it's didn't have anything in it, of course, because it's a notebook. And I thought, oh, it was it was quite nice, and it's sort of, and I've written, you know, twenty first of the tenth, twenty fifteen. So that was the first, and I just started reading things so I sort of start to read and I and I make a few notes and one person leads to the next and then I think I should go and talk to that person and then I write about Layla and what she's doing and then um, some other book and it sort of goes on and on and on and on and then I think well what have I got um, I mean I go places I record things I transcribe things and then it sort of takes its shape from what I find, because I, you never know what you're going to find. And if you don't, if you knew what you were going to find, you didn't, wouldn't need to go anywhere, you know. Um, but when you, you know, each person I engaged with told me something beyond what I'd gone there for, which was that was the, the lovely surprise, um, and um, and it was an insight into what made them human what made their story different. Um, and it was a range of different people in different situations that gave me an idea about, about love, about disappointment, about um, perseverance, um, and all of these kinds of things that humans are capable of too. Um, and, and so that, I mean, I couldn't have possibly have known about that unless I'd gone to meet them and had an, and some sort of engagement with them. So then I sort of think, well, you know, what have I got here? I've got this, I've got that. How will I start to talk, tell a reader about what, I, what I've discovered? And for me, I have to start from the beginning because I just like, you know, we're, I think we're wired for stories and I like stories that begin and, and have a middle and an end and sort of the logic of it appeals to me and I think it probably appeals to most people unless you're doing sort of some very big sort of a rare, rarefied postgraduate literature degree where you don't care about such things. But most people, I think, do care. So I begin to say, okay, well, how will I begin this story? You know, why am I here? Why am I telling you this? And what did I discover along the way? And what led to this? And this? So that sort of assembles itself in a kind of self-assembly from what there is that I've discovered. It's not, look, it's not very rational, but it sort of works, I think, eventually. No, I think it works really well as a, as a book and as a concept because it really does flow really nicely. And you do, as you said, you go right back to the very beginning and go right through to, you know, to what you tell us is our near future, which is, it's, it's really enjoyable. Oh, I'm really pleased to hear that, Ben. I mean, what else? What else could I possibly? I'm so happy to hear it. I mean, that's why I did it. So that you would feel like that and you would think like that. And hopefully you would think about things you hadn't thought you were going to think about because unless somebody's taking you by the hand and saying, hey, look at this, this is kind of interesting and helps you along the way, then, you know, you probably 
wouldn't be interested. In one of your early chapters, you go to the Melbourne Zoo and I found it really fascinating because I think there's a sense uh, that you get of the commercialization of these animals uh, in a way that they're personified. And I think your book really rails against that whole idea. Well, you know, when you go to the zoo, you've got all these these characters, like these these apes that, you know, are pretending that they're... I mean, the thing is that, you know, their habitat is threatened, so um, th- there's a campaign to... And, and because their habitat is threatened by mining, using, looking for some, some of the uh, minerals that are important in, say, for example, phones... Uh, mobile phones or computers so someone's thought oh well why don't we get these animals to sort of symbolize you know um, uh, you know phones some somehow connect phones and animals and habitat and then so they've got these pictures of these um, um, gorillas and uh, who, who are supposedly sort of poster boys for things but actually, it was very hard to see any of the gorillas because they weren't coming out when I was there, and and they were quite dangerous. So, so all of this idea that you know cuddly animals and they're just like us turns out when you go to the zoo, you can hard, you never you can't actually engage with them much because they're really dangerous and they do dangerous things with people and they hurt you. Um, and um, so this idea that they're just like us and they're poster boys for various. Um, uh, sort of money collecting uh, enterprises seems to be kind of mad and then you know but the people who work there are very very sort of tuned into this idea that um, oh don't worry that they're they're not you know they're not really just animals in cages we're just you know we're all behind them and they're here to to make sure that their fellows in the wild are having a nice time and so the whole story of the zoo is very mystifying. And, and considering actually the zoo, zoos began in, in the 19th century as sort of collections of strange animals for people to eat, um, you know, they've, got, they've got quite an interesting story to tell um, about, uh, about how, how they've evolved themselves. But, you know, when you're dealing with people and, and the animals, they really want to project ideas of, of human personality on on animals and a lot of people do that they do it to their pets and they do it to all kinds of animals it's what we you know we kind of do as human beings but actually it's you know when you study animals and you study the minds of of apes and and the person like uh, Daniel Povanelli who I interviewed uh, about his studies about how how uh, chimps think you really you know you really have to come to the conclusion that they don't exactly think like us because they're not us. But interestingly enough, they, you know, they can see the things we can see and they can hear the things we can hear and they can do th- other things that we can't do very well, but they actually aren't thinking about the world the way we do. And that was an eye-opening for me too. Mm. Was it for you? It, it definitely was. It's, kind of the, it's one of the things that I, I've, I guess I've thought about in the past but it really did bring it to light in a way I hadn't considered before. And in a much more, I think when sometimes when you think about a concept like that, your mind has fragments of that and you put it together for me really well. And you kind of 
you ordered a lot of thoughts I probably had previously and ordered them really well so that they made sense rather than being fragmentary little bits of, of thought. Well, that's right. And that's what you can do when you spend a long time on a project. You know, you can you can think it all through and you can sort of, and if you can present it in a way that, you know, allows the, the reader to assimilate ideas and then, you know, go to the next and go to the next and then go back and remind them of something and then move it along and expand it. I think that's what the task is, I guess, mm. in nonfiction anyway. Speaking of nonfiction, uh, can we move on to your 2015 book, Bloodhound, which is a search for your father? Yeah, that's <laughs> what would you like to ask? So I guess with this story, and I think the book is fantastic, by the way, it's just a, it's it's like a detective story in a lot of ways, and it's so personal, and it's uh, the the idea of the Holocaust, like my grandparents were also in a DP camp in Australia when they came here. So it has a lot of personal resonance for me. But I guess it's the kind of thing where uh, stepping into your shoes, going through your journey of that was really amazing for me. But I guess what I wanted to ask you about it was what prompted you to write it? What prompted you to do something so personal and put it out there? Well, I think for people who haven't um, read it, I mean, really, it's it's really about discovering um, in my 40s, I suppose, um, and long, you know, my mother died when I was 23 and my dad, who she, she was married to, had left, had left before. I suppose I'd always thought that there was something odd about my family. Um, my parents were both Holocaust survivors. My mother was a bit younger than my father. She'd survived as a, as a um, child or a t- you know, teenager in the false with a false identity in Warsaw and my dad had um survived you know with a, a few labor camps and then he hid in in a hole in the ground uh, until the end of the war so you know a, you know horrible and intriguing histories there and then they meet at the at the end of the war and they form a very unhappy marriage which is bad luck for both of them really um and then they sort of make their way through paris for a few years and then to australia so it wasn't like a happy family situation but i I always had a feeling that there was something about my relationship with my dad which was a bit odd and and I didn't have that sort of sense that, you know, the other girls had with their fathers. You know, you could see girls and their dads. It's, you know, it's a trope, isn't it? I mean, but it didn't work with me. But, and then my mother died young and I looked after her till she died and my dad was had gone off. Um, so there was plenty happening. But when I was about 45 or so, I sort of began to think it might be worth exploring what the real story is and that's because there were a few sort of hints given later on that I thought I could actually follow up some some information but you know it's a book about what how you actually create a story when when all, most of the people are dead that you could actually ask and it's kind of awkward too because you know you're actually asking people about your mother who would would have had to have had a, a, you know a, a, a an affair or were, was raped or something when she was a married woman in, in the 50s in post-Holocaust uh, Melbourne, Australia, Jewish community. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, shameful. Um, uh, but early on, I mean, I had trained as a geneticist years ago, so I was very interested to know whether my sister and I 
had, um, you know, were full sisters. And she, um, to her credit, said, you know, okay, look, you know, she just thought it was going to be like some kind of strange, um, you know, craziness that I was going to be sort of obsessed by. And she sort of said, okay, so she gave, you know, we, we did our, our buckle smears from the inside of our mouths and I sent it off to a laboratory because, you know, it was a long time ago now, it was 20 years ago. And um, it came back and it turned out and it said, your, your sister and, and you are half-sisters, you don't have the same father. And, for, and this was early on in the book, so it won't spoil it for anybody who wants to read it. And for me, it was a thrill because I thought, you know, that little no noise in your head going, mm -mm -mm, maybe this is something happening. And then suddenly it, there it is on a piece of paper and it's true. Now, for me, it was a great relief. For her, she wasn't so happy to hear it because she didn't really want to know. Uh, it wasn't something she was following. She had enough on her plate with her life. So, um, and then that was an interesting question about how does one write about something as intimate as a shared history with, with your sister who doesn't have the same father uh, without saying that? Because otherwise the whole book falls apart if I can't, if I can't point to that fact, which is a fact. So it's an, it, was, it was interesting. But the book is really about evidence, about, um, about research, about what we, can you know, what stories are you know, why they're important for us. To anyone listening, I highly recommend this book. It just it blew me away when I read it the first time and it's highly, highly worth a read. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what are you currently working on? Well, you know, after sort of such a big sort of five-year journey and now it's probably six because Layla is six now because she turned six in, in June. So that's how long I've been working on this book and then it was uh, released last um uh, October 1st, uh, right into the pandemic. So um, it got some great reviews and then all kinds of things were cancelled because I couldn't make um, um, personal sort of uh, appearances and lots of interviews were cancelled and lots of writers festivals. But I, you know, I still managed to get to Sydney Writers Festival and um, some others. But um, so it's really taken a long time to work out what to do next because this is the third book that I'd written uh, in the 10 years since I left the ABC. So um, it's not too bad, three and a half years or something, or three and a third years per book, but roughly the first one, which was called By the Book, A Reader's Guide to Life, I, I, you know, I, was, I wrote in that first year. And the second one took a few more years and the third one took a lot more. So of course, you're just sort of working out, what can I possibly write about now I've got you know, I've written about the whole history of human human development and the possible future. Is there anything else? So uh, it's been hard to try and work out what to do, but I have decided to start working on some essays. So I'm, I've got a list of topics that I want to write essays about, and I've started to do that. Um, you know, little small steps, small bites. Maybe one of those will develop into a book, or maybe they'll be a book of essays. I'm not sure yet. Let's take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're talking with Ramona Koval. This episode is brought to you by the new Toyota iSlam, with room for the whole militia and still space for a rocket launcher in the back. Available now at Kabul Toyota.
We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ramona Carval. Welcome to the Book Show on ABC Radio National or on your computer or on your nifty MP3 player, wherever you are in the world. Hello, Ramona Koval here. The theme you just heard is the theme from the book show, which Ramona hosted on Radio National from, how long was it, Ramona? It was from the inception, which was 2006, till uh, when I left in 2011. Wow. And this was a daily book show. As far as I'm aware, it was the only one of its type in the world. It was, absolutely. For me, this was essential listening. I turned on this show wherever I was, if I could, and I used to listen at 10 a.m. to Ramona every single day, and she interviewed some of the luminaries of the literary world, and the list is endless. I was going through some of the people you interviewed today. You had Jonathan Franzen. Brian Boyd, Lauren Stein, Maria Vargas, Yosa, Stephen Moore, Harold Pinter, Ian Rankin. Gosh, the, the list just goes on and on. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it was good, wasn't it? It was a very fine way to spend my, my life for quite a long time. It was the book show for six years, and before that I did books and writing on Radio National for about 13 years before that. So um, it was a great privilege and a pleasure and a lot of work. Uh, You can imagine a lot of reading. To do a daily show five days a week, it meant that you had to really work out very carefully um, what books you're going to read and when and balancing, you know, if you had a great big thick, you know, um, novel, you'd have to have, say, some essays and then some poetry, other kinds of days because you couldn't read five novels a week, you know, because I was always, I read everything I spoke about um, because that I wasn't ever wanting to read a book without, talk about a book without reading it. Anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful way to do an interview as you're, as you can tell, because when you enter into the work, you kind of know a lot more about what the person's thinking about and how they approach the world and what their interests have been. And as soon as you show the person you're interviewing that you actually have read their books, you just, you know, they're just putty in your hands because everyone's really happy to be taken seriously and that somebody has devoted some time to your work. So that was my, that was what I did. And I wouldn't interview anybody whose book I hadn't read. And therefore I really decided for myself what I was going to cover. And it was really about what I felt I could sustain and interest in. So um, I had a, some other people who were working on the show and I would give them, you know, if they had, they wanted to do X book or Y book and I wasn't interested in it, then they would do that. And, you know, reviewers would go and review some books. Um, and it was not, you know, it was, it was basically anything in the book world. It wasn't just uh, novels or essays. So it was publishing, in, things about publishing, things about the technology of books, things about the history of books and ideas. Um, it was, you know, the everything connected to a book. And, and of course, a book could be about anything. So it was a real, it was a real hoot. Do you have some highlights from your time in that show? Because I know there would be endless highlights. Um, and I guess for our listeners as well, a lot of these highlights are there on your website, naramonacobble.com, and also on the ABC website. Do you have some highlights you could share with us? 
Well, look, I tell you, you know, as you as you as you said, I mean, it was just—it's a big blur now, of course, all those years and daily, and um, I I I I decided that I would. Being in Australia, it was hard to get um, to get face-to-face -face interviews with people who weren't going to be here for writers' festivals. And I knew that I would have to actually go to the world rather than expect the world to come here. And I, I began to be invited to international writers' festivals um, because somebody, look, somebody, I, I, I'd gone, I think I was, uh, I'd got myself organised to go to Harbourfront, I think it was, in Toronto. And when I say I got myself organised, you know, at the ABC, asking for money for anything was always a big pain in the neck and it was going to take a million years and then probably the answer was no. So what I decided to do was I would um, pay for it myself and use my holidays and buy a ticket and go somewhere and um, do some interviews while I was there. And it turned out at Harbourfront in Toronto that a woman that I'd met there had lived in Melbourne and had heard my show. And she was actually running the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And she said, would you like to come to Edinburgh? You know, one day, could you get yourself to Edinburgh and would you do some interviews for us? And I said, well, that would be fantastic. And if I could record them, that would be even better. And she said, of course, that would be great. So then the next year I got myself to Edinburgh and I did a whole, started on this series of interviews and, you know, Susan Sontag and Norman Mailer and, um, and Gore Vidal and <laughs> all of these extraordinary people. Um, and I don't know, because I was Australian maybe and because I was um, Jewish and maybe because I had chutzpah and because I could actually do all the work. I knew that, that there's nothing. Once you do all the work, once you do all the reading, who, no, that's, that's all you need to do an interview with somebody. You know, they're just human beings who have done some good writing. And so I think because of that attitude and, I, you know, I got on with people and People enjoyed the interviews. The audiences were, were very were very complimentary and very enthusiastic. So I recorded those things. I brought them back to Australia and I played them on my show, even though it was done all as a holiday effort. And then people started saying, oh, you know, they're really good. And, you know, maybe you could go to my festival at, you know, and they would start interviewing, asking me to come to their festivals. And by which time I said to the ABC, look, I think you should pay for this now because you're getting some very good good work here. And eventually they did, you know, begrudgingly. But um, so that's sort of, I suppose, the highlight of that, those years was traveling. And, you know, I was, I was recording everything myself. You know, I was traveling, recording, reading, setting up things behind the scenes of, of all the recording, getting someone to press play, hoping that there was not a glitch in the technology that meant that this whole performance wasn't going to be recorded properly. You know, going onto the stage, doing the gig, you know, dealing with the audiences, then running back, hopefully it's worked out, hopefully there's not interference, sending it down the line back to, back to Australia um, and having it, oh, of course, you know, because, you know, they never gave you lots of time off or anything, so you had to sort of do it. You had to make a few programs before you left and then you had to send things so when you got back it would all be edited by then 
Anyway, it was a lot, um, but it was probably, it was a pretty good thing to do, I think. It was pretty good for me. It was pretty good for Australian culture, I think, to be a little bit more connected with the world by having an Australian voice engaging with these people too. I think the, the level of quality you brought to that show and the level of exposure you gave to not only Australian writers but obviously the international ones as well, I think it really did something for our culture in Australia. I think it really changed the way we we looked at bookshops and we um, we looked at world literature because you really exposed us to so many amazing writers and amazing things. Oh, that's wonderful. That's what I well, I was. It was a it was a wonderful education for my for me, and it was great to share all the things that I was enthusiastic about. And you know, the thing was that. Um, someone said to me the other day, "Oh, you, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't uh, do any sort of, you know, vicious reviews about things, or you did." And for me, I just thought there's so much good to read. Why would I be spending my time getting, you know, having arguments with people about the quality of, of this or that book when there's so much else that I could just say, "Hey, look at this," and "Hey, look at that," and engaging things to think about and to discover. So it's just not my sort of personality, I suppose, uh, to, to, bring, to bring people down off their heights or to get engaged in, in sort of viciousness. Um, I mean, I understand that, you know, it, it's fair enough that, you know, there are, some, there are some critiques that you can make, but, you know, so often I see even, you know, lately, some pretty shallow critiques of, of people's work. Um, and sometimes I, I think to myself, you know, that the, the reviewer has got an axe to, to grind, really. Why not me? You know, why isn't it me? In fact, some of the worst interviews that you see um, are of writers interviewing other writers where, <laughs> where, you know, the person who's being interviewed, um, the person who's interviewing is kind of really resenting the person who's being interviewed and wants to, you know, talk about themselves a bit more than, you know, not realising that this is the other person's time to shine. So there's a little bit of that that goes on in the literary world that I wasn't, wasn't interested in, wasn't part of. Was there anyone that you really wished you had interviewed but didn't get? Um, look, I always, look, I t not really. I mean, I, um, I was interested in interviewing Philip Roth but, you know, if you read any interviews with Philip Roth, he was such an awful person to interview. I mean, if some, some of the interviews I've read have been really kind of vicious. Like he was really hard on people and he wasn't prepared to engage with them. And it was probably completely, was, I, I'm lucky not to have actually interviewed him. Um, I mean, I interviewed, um, where's my book about with the book of interviews it's called um speaking volumes um there's one interview there with um, joyce carol oates now i did i did this interview in um, edinburgh and i'd read a lot of you know she's incredibly prolific in fact she writes under an assumed name because her publishers can't publish how much she writes under joyce carol oates so she has to publish under another name so that she can still sort of sell those and get them out off her desk so i'd read a whole range of things but she was obviously in a really bad mood and nothing that i started you know nothing she'd sort of like she wouldn't talk she would just sort of block 
And finally, um, I, I asked her about this little book um, and she sort of suddenly went, oh, have you read that book? And I said, yeah, I've read a lot of your work. And she said, but nobody's read that book. I didn't think anybody read that book except for me and my, my, my agent. And, and I said, oh, well, I thought it was good and blah, blah, blah. And after she sort of suddenly realized she was dealing with someone who actually had done the work, she sort of melted and it was probably about a quarter of an hour into the conversation. And, and then she kind of, we had this good conversation, but I thought never again will I speak to you because she's so, she's so mean. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and there have been a few people like that um, that I've decided I won't ever speak to. And it's very rewarding because eventually someone asks you to speak to them again. And I have to say I have declined politely and it's given me a lot of pleasure <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Book Show on ABC Radio National with me, Ramona Koval. Today, from the archives, a conversation I had with the American novelist and memoirist Joseph Heller, master of the absurd, so much so that the title of his first novel and most famous book, Catch-22, has entered the English language as the expression for an absurd and illogical concept. And we start a new first-person reading, a classic work of American literature, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. We're back on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ramona Koval. Um, Let's move on to you as a reader. So I know as a child you're a voracious reader and you've spoken about your mother's reading habits and, you know, reading it on her lap kind of thing. Um, Was there a gateway book for you, like, that opened up the world of literature? Well, the thing that opened up the world of literature for me wasn't wasn't a book in, in the form that I heard it, but it was The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. And it was um, a story that was played on a record in, I think, the kindergarten or the grade one of the school that I was at. It might have even been kindergarten, but it was um, a recording of The Happy Prince, which was, I don't know, do you know The Happy Prince? Do you know the story? Yeah, yeah, I've got it behind me. Oh, where is it? It's on the shelf up the top somewhere. I've got it in a big compendium of Oscar Wilde. Oh, really? Mm. So, I mean, now I've got it, you know, I, I wrote this book, um, the first book that I, I wrote um, after I left the ABC, um, called um, By the Book, A Reader's Guide to Life. And I wrote about this, um, uh, about all the books that I kind of had slipped along with me all these years. You know, some things came home. I mean, most things didn't because I couldn't just, you know, so many books. But the ones that came home were ones that had touched me or that I'd had anyway because I'd carried them around since I was a child and a young woman and a teenager and all of that. And they were the ones that moved with me through all of the movements I've, moves I've had. And then things that I thought I ought to read at some point as well that I hadn't read so far, mostly classics because I hadn't had a literary education. So um, this, and I, and I said, you know, this, this was narrated by Orson Welles. If you, oh, you probably don't know that. Of course, of course um, I know who Orson Welles is. I know, but you don't know this particular particular recording, perhaps. <laughs> no, Orson Welles reading it, and he said, "High above the city, Orson begins." 
on a tall column stood the statue of the happy prince. He was gilded all over with thin leaves of fine gold. For eyes he had two bright sapphires and a large red ruby glowed on his sword hilt. And it sort of tells of his awareness uh, after a life of carefree happiness that there are some people in the city who were poor and needed help. And he said, when I was alive and had a human heart, I didn't know what tears were for. But now that he was dead, well, he's, actually a, he's actually a statue, he can see all the ugliness of the city and, and, and though his heart is made of lead, he cannot choose but weep. And it was so moving, this idea that this prince that was actually a statue and this little bird that he was having this relationship with and helping him deliver things to the different parts of the city, bits of his bits of his hilt and the, of the sword and jewels that he would in, encrusted and so and, and the bird picks out bits of this and carries it around and it just appealed to my sort of my little heart and I thought what well, a story can make you you know you make your breath breathless really and make your skin crawl and make you um, sad and make you cry and make you happy and I thought I'm going to get more of this. And that was my gateway book. It was a story that was read to me by Orson Welles. <laughs> it's pretty good company to keep, Oscar Wilde and Orson Welles. <laughs> what draws you into a book? What makes you pick up a book and read it? Um, I have a look. At the, I, I wrote an essay um, for the Sydney Writers' Festival um, was really about my relationships with dead writers um, because, um, you know, some people have this idea, you know, that if you look at a literary, literary um, magazines, especially, say, the London Review of Books or even New York Review of Books, the Bloomsbury's are constantly in there, you know, and the Bloomsbury set and the people who were related to the Bloomsbury set and other people. But they're not for me. I mean, I'm really interested in, for some reason, this the early part of the 19th century up until about the 40s in Middle Europa, you know, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so sometimes if a book is related to that, um, I will pick it up because it's sort of part of the sort of the bricks in the walls of this edifice of, of works that I'm interested in. Um, so there'd be that reason lately. That's what I've been reading lately. But... Um, I don't know. For me, um, it, it would be by a writer that I admire. Um, if it's a book that I that I know a little bit about the writer, if it's um, if it's been reviewed by someone I ad admire and positively, I think I might have a look at that. Um, so, and look, you know, really, for the last five years, I've only read books that. You know, you can see by the a letter to Layla, it's a very, it's highly intensive, even though it's not presented to, you know, too much difficult detail, but there's a lot of work that goes into doing all the reading, not just books, but um, papers and following all kinds of trails of scientific work. So I didn't have very much time in the last five years to sort of noodle around in bookshops or anything like that um, to sort of find out what what might take my fancy. Sometimes people send me books, and um, and then I'll read, I'll have a look at it, and if it, you know, sometimes I'll be, I'll become completely engrossed because someone has said, oh, I think you'll like that. 
So it's really um, a sort of a peripatetic uh, travels through bookshelves and other people's sensibilities, I suppose. I think that's the best way to 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 find books, isn't it? Like asking what other people are reading and having books passed on to you, and it's it's a nice way to to read. Yeah, and sometimes and just and I and then I sometimes go to my bookshelves here and in my other room and realize, oh, okay, I think it's time to read that book because I I had brought books back and said I you know said to myself I ne- really need to read it, and so. Um, I did this recently. I was um, I started reading reading um, Berlin Alexander Platz, um, and I hadn't read it before. But I, yeah, I started that a, a few weeks ago. So um, yeah, I mean, all kinds of reasons to read. Well, with that, let's move on to what you're currently reading and what books you're looking forward to. Well, um, I tell you what. Um, what I've just read is a fantastic book, which I, I put on my top ten, actually, um, by Edward Hirsch. Actually, there's two books by Edward Hirsch on this. And um, Edward Hirsch is an American poet and also a, a, a teacher of poetry. And some years ago, he wrote this fantastic book called How to Read a Poem and Fall, Fall in Love with Poetry. And um, it is such a great book. I must, you know, just recommend it to anybody, especially if you're if you've thought, oh, poems aren't really for you, or you know, I'm not quite sure how to approach this. They all, they, you know, they must reference other things, and I haven't read all the other things that they're referencing. So how could I possibly begin with this small number of words on a page with a lot of white space? But he begins and takes you through what a poem is and takes you through some of the his you know favorite poets and some of the important poems that you should know about and why they work you know not just the imagery and not just you know the words but the sounds of the words and the combinations together and i just thought that was a great a great book and i interviewed him actually at breadloaf breadloaf is one of these um, um writers workshops that's been going i think since 1920 in america um and so i went there and i interviewed him met him and interviewed him so i kind of knew him for a little while and then and it was a a time when he and his wife were just um adopting a baby um they tried for a while to to have a baby and they couldn't and they were adopting a baby and and there was a lot of sort of um flying to italy for some reason and adopting a child and bringing bringing this baby back and so I knew a little bit about that just at the time just um, as as it was happening then um, I read in the New Yorker I think last year maybe the year before suddenly there was a whole thing about Edward Hirsch and this piece in the New Yorker and it was all about this book that he'd read it was all about this book that he'd written a poem called Gabriel and Gabriel was the name of this little baby that they'd adopted and it was such a sad story because Gabriel as soon as as soon as Gabriel started to you know be a toddler and it was really difficult and he 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 had a lot of learning difficulties he had a lot of um, mentally mental health issues and it was just such a terrible story. But and when he was twenty-two, he died of an overdose um, in New York. 
and this this poem is it's just a short short poem short book it's such an extraordinary book about a father who's trying to understand this child and this this dance that they do through the whole life of the child it's so moving it's so brilliant so everyone should read gabriel by by edward hirsch and i've just finished that just a few a few um weeks ago and i just started reading today actually what you know um if you a letter to layla uh, has got an interview with a woman called pat shipman and she was um one of the world experts on neanderthals and on um on the use of ne uh, the difference between homo sapiens and neanderthals in terms of um you know they were occupying the same area and they ate the same food and the thing that that homo sapiens had which they didn't have was was dogs and they you, they used the dog as a, a a tool and the dog would help with um hunting and, and all kinds of stuff like that and she's just got a new book which just got sent to me um called our oldest companions so i literally started reading that this morning um so that's what i mean about um you know connections that you make and stories that you that you come to because of um your history and your your previous interests it's funny that because i think i remember hearing this on your show that with books a lot of the time you'll find something in one book that will inevitably lead you in a certain area and it doesn't have to be predetermined it'll lead you somewhere completely different and you'll end up going down this rabbit warren of other texts i find yeah. it so interesting it is it's like surfing the net i mean um you know what you're 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 introduced to a whole range of it's like being at a party and somebody you go you go someone you go with will introduce you to a friend and then you'll talk to them and then you'll be introduced to someone else and it's just you know this is a human but what's great about human beings and the way we think and and we like to share stories with each other we like to share ideas it's it's good to be a homo sapiens sometimes <laughs> it is good to be homo sapiens <laughs> we'll take a quick break here and come back with ramona's top 10 Good morning, Ramona Koval here, welcoming you to another week of The Book Show on ABC Radio National. Now, did you know that Gerald Manane has such an enthusiastic following in Sweden that several of his books have been translated into Swedish, and his name has even been mentioned in connection with the Nobel Prize, and in the space of a few months, he's received two major Australian awards both recognising an outstanding body of work, and we'll speak to him shortly. And this week in First Person, we're once again presenting a range of short stories by different writers, exploring different subjects. Today, it's a story called Mick Gatto's Comeback by Misha Mertz, a Melbourne journalist and writer who became so captivated by boxing that she trained and fought as an amateur. Well, from boxing to horse racing, uh, horse racing, and if there's an Australian writer whose name is associated with this sport of kings, it's Gerald Manane, whose first novel, Tamarisk Row, was published in 1974 and introduced us to a child's imagined world centred on horse riding. We're back with Ramona Koval. It's time to hear Ramona's top ten.
Well, you know, this is this is really hopeless for me because I don't have a top ten really. But what I did was I, you know, I looked into by the book, and these were these were some of the books that I were important for me. So um, I've mentioned the Happy Prince. Well, the Trial by Kafka, Franz Kafka, and that was one of the uh, the first grown up books that I ever read because I was um, I was twelve or eleven or something and. Uh, we used to go to the bus library at Camberwell bus ser library service because the big library was too scary. And on the bottom of the bus library, you could just lie on the lino and you could just read stuff. And um, and I um, I and down the bottom were the K's, and I noticed sort of Kerstler, Kafka. There was some other K, but I saw the trial by. I thought that's a thin book. That's a skinny book. That looks like something a kid could read. So um, I went up and I said, "I'd like to borrow this." And, and the librarian said, "Oh, that's for, not for children." And I said, "I've read all the children's books, which was a lie because I hadn't." But I don't like books about talking animals. So I and he said, "Well, you can if you if you've read all the books for children, you can take that." So I was allowed to take the trial. Like Kafka home, and I read it, and I, of course, I didn't understand very much about it, but I, I got the idea that this guy had done something, and he didn't know what it was, but he was in trouble, and that felt familiar to me, and partly, and now I think after writing Bloodhound, there was something about there was some story that I didn't understand, there was something going on that I wasn't party to, but I was very much concerned with with the procedure the process and that's I think why I I uh, remember it and why I um, I went back to it later it means of course every time you read a book you you're a different person and you read it differently um, and and part of my interest in this writing by the book was that going back to books and seeing what it was that I loved about them and this another one my mother's house by Colette um, which is a, a series of of short pieces um, uh, centered around this little house in this village and her mother and there was such love between her and her mother and such wonderful um, description I loved that that book too Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert um, because I I felt like uh, I felt like uh, Anna isn't it Anna Bovary um, that somehow life was about to begin, that it wasn't now and it wasn't here, but somewhere over the over the vista, your real life would begin, and and you and you would be there, and but not here, and so uh, that was important to me. Um, Joseph Roth, I don't know if you know his work, but um, yes, yeah. So there's so many good pieces of his, though. Which one well, did you choose? Right. Well, it, the Joseph Roth that I, I mean, I just think the Radetzky March is wonderful, but that wasn't my gateway Joseph Roth book. My gateway Joseph Roth book was um, what I saw, Reports from Berlin, 1920 to 1933. And because he was, um, his, his great talent was writing Feuilleton, you know, these sort of um, life in half a page or something of the German newspaper, and uh, in the literary section, and he'd do this fantastic description of um, these newfangled um, escalators in some of the new buildings in Berlin, or 
he would talk about the um, Ostjuden, you know, the the people from Eastern Europe who were coming with their um, make trying to make a life in Berlin from the east, and they were just beautifully hauntingly written pieces of journalism, and um, translated by uh, Michael Hoffman, who is a poet and uh, who introduced me to Joseph Roth, and then. Um, and, and he was one of the writers that I wrote this essay about um, for the Sydney Writers Festival, which is on my website um, uh, called My Writers. And it's really about these relationships I have with these dead writers and, and why they're important. Um, the Man Who Loved Children by Christina Stead was important to me because it was the first time I had read a book where uh, a girl has got a bad relationship with her father and I'd never it was quite shocking just to, to read that because you in all the other books that I'd read up until I probably was 14 or 15 or 16 maybe when I read it and it just wasn't allowed I didn't know that you were allowed to write a book about these kinds of things so that was important Grace Paley I don't know if you know her work she's a she's a uh, American short story writer dead now, but I, I interviewed her. I did meet her long after my um, I first read her work, um, the little disturbances of man and enormous changes at the last minute, which were two short story collections, and they'd both been given to me, or one of them. I think the little disturbances of man were given to me by a friend who is also a writer now. But we worked together at the University of Melbourne in the microbiology department when I was pregnant with my older daughter Emma, and um, when I had and I had her in my fourth year in my honours year in August, which was a really bad time to have a baby in your honours year. But and I thought that I was I could go to the I thought that you could take your thesis to hospital and you know while you're in between contractions you could do some work but that's how much I knew about having babies. But <laughs> my friend Sally Morrison gave me Grace Paley and I realised that you could only read maybe a short short story not and not between contractions. But when <laughs> I think I was in hospital for two weeks because I had a cesarean. So in the olden days they didn't throw you out. So I read Grace Paley's short stories. And that period and that was they were fantastic i've told you about edward hirsch and both of the hirsch's um ernest shackleton south the endurance expedition to antarctica um i'm a great i love exploring explorers and i you know the tales of daring do and stuff like that and there's lots of them on my shelf here but yeah that's quite a good one shackleton and south i love that book i read that when i was about 15. it's such an adventure isn't it? It's just, mm. I mean, and you if you kind of imagine, I mean, it's all very well to read, but if you imagine you're actually living in those, those, you know, frozen wastelands and with those, and all your digits getting cold and everything, not having enough food and just, you know, so brave, so wonderful, so foolhardy, so important, you know, this human quest. Some people are really good at it, this sort of, quest for new information and look any poetry by this lover Zimborska um, would be on my top list I mean I think she's the, the most brilliant poet and secondhand time by Svetlana Alexevich um, who won a Nobel Prize um, but she sort of she's it's an interesting approach to non-fiction 
she's interviewed all of these people about their views about Soviet growing up in the Soviet Union and fighting for the Soviet Union and um, and the abandonment of communism and the disillusionment of, of, of their ideas for the future and and such a brilliant kind of way of presenting very very um, uh, not not putting herself forward much but you you knowing how much she would have had to talk to people how much they would have had to trust her how much she would have had to put into creating you know helping to create these conversations they're they're only one side of it because she writes it as if the person is um telling you something and they're just wonderful so yeah anything by Svetlana Aleksevich actually because I've read a few of them so there's an eclectic group of things um it's funny because <laughs> they right. they they really you were talking about bricks and mortar uh before and that seems to be so much of your bricks and mortar all of those all of those books yeah I mean I'm just interested in the world and curious mm. and um yeah, it's, sorry about that, but that's how it is. I mean, I don't really have any ideas about, you know, the great books and what are, what are you know, the... Because it just depends on who you are and it depends on how you're going to chime with them. Mm. And um, something that will be, you know, really important for one person will, will just not move another person. And it's, it's highly idiosyncratic, I think. The love of books and why why we love them. I mean, I would have loved to have done a literature degree and had somebody help me through it and someone taking me through saying, well, this is why this is an important book. And, and that would have been fantastic, but I didn't. Um, and so basically I've sort of made my own lists for my own reasons. I think in a way that whole idea of a canon of of great texts is is a bit erroneous and I do think it is such a personal thing. It is, it is. And um and it was interesting to to read these books again, you know, and there's a lot more in in this little book in by the book that I write about. But when you kind of coming back to a book and finding out what what was it about that book that I loved and then finding a line, a particular line and thinking, oh I remember reading that line. And what did it and you sort of take it you're taken back to that moment and then you're fifteen suddenly and you remember what was going on when I was fifteen that that line would have resonated for me. So it was it's very interesting to do that. That's funny because I, I have the same feeling when I go back to something. You remember the place where you were when you were reading it the first time and it really does take you back in time and, and put you in a different place. Absolutely. And it's great. It's like, you know, it's like um it's the smell, and mm. it's the you can you can you know you can you, you can almost be in the same room, or you know you can remember the weather. It's um it's uh, it's it's our our lost time, isn't it? Before we go, do you want to tell everybody where we can find you and your work and your audio and things like that? Well, um, you can find my work hopefully in any good bookshop. And um, the latest one is called A Letter to Layla Travels to Our Deep Past and Near Future. And then there was Bloodhound, Searching for My Father, and Buy the Book, A Reader's Guide to Life, and they're all published by Text Publishing. And there are other books longer ago, but, you know, they're, they're um, you know, books, collections of interviews and stuff like that. 
a Jewish cookbook actually, but it's out of print. Um, but, um, and look, I've got a website called RamonaCoval.com and you'll see sort of essays there and audio there of a collection of interviews that I've done over the years and transcripts. And um, that's just about it for me because I don't, uh, I don't do any, I sometimes I do public interviews with occasional writers who I like and I've been interested in their work. So, um, and then, but they'll, they'll be on the website as well if you're interested in having a look at those, the more recent ones. Ramona, it has been such a pleasure. I highly recommend uh, your new book and your previous book, but go out and get a letter to Layla. It's, uh, it's great reading. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And it's been a pleasure and thank you for asking me. You're welcome. Anytime. Thanks once again to Ramona Corval. You can find her at RamonaCorval.com. You can find us on Twitter at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.